So where we've been for eight weeks, let's come now to God's word. This is the point. This is most of the reason why uh, we're gathering here this morning. We've been dealing with the concept of discipleship, a word that the Bible uses like crazy, and a word that churches use even more, oftentimes defining it in ways that maybe the Bible would not define it or has not defined it. So we've been trying to come back to who Jesus is, who he says he is, the way that he interacts with his own disciples, or the word we've used is apprentices, in the New Testament. And by doing that, we've made emphasis on spiritual practices because we've come to understand that the world that we live in is a formation machine and that we cannot just be passive. We cannot just come to church a couple of hours a week and expect our lives to trend toward Christ. Everything that's working on us is also working against us because it's working against God's image uh, in us. It's encouraging us to become more like each other, more worldly, more depressed, more anxious, more nervous, more consumeristic, more materialistic, and these are not the values of the way of Jesus. No matter how much these things may have infected some of the churches that we've been a part of, when we look to Jesus himself, we get a clear picture of what it means to be in the world, but not of it. And so I've tried to help you to distill the lifestyle of following Jesus down into three short objectives. We've said this every week. I want you to see him again, because I want these to be burned into your memory, your heart, your mind. They are, we want to belong to Jesus, which means we choose him as our rabbi. We say, you will be the thing that I will follow instead of following money or my parents or a career or success or my fear or my pain or whatever else. I'm yours, Jesus, because you have to belong to something. Two, we want to behold him. This simply means we continue to expose ourselves to what it is that he's doing, and we put ourselves in positions where he will keep showing himself off as well. So there's the presence of the scriptures, what God has already done, who Jesus is, what he says, what he has taught, and there's also our lived daily experience, uh, to quote the Apostle Paul, in step with the Spirit of God, where we're sensing how he's directing us, never out of line with what the scriptures command or expect from us, but oftentimes with more of a specific edge uh, than we can find necessarily in the pages of our Bible. God is good to be near us. And then finally, we become like him. That's sort of a result of the first two. That over time, by being exposed and by choosing him and choosing him again and repenting and apologizing and coming back when we fall away, we are eventually made into his image, which, whether you know it or not, was the original purpose of being a human. The point of man and woman on the earth was to bear the image of God. And so as we find ourselves transformed by degree into the image of Jesus, we are fulfilling our purpose. There is no higher calling, and frankly, there is no better experience for you and I than to degree by degree to be transformed into the image of Christ. So in order to do that, right, those are three great objectives, but if you're like me, you probably cannot brute force your way into belonging and beholding and becoming, certainly not in a way that's transformative. So we have to break those concepts down into actual tangible steps that we can take, things that Jesus emphasized and things that the New Testament early church really made a point to emphasize as well. We said that in order to embrace a sort of holistic formation strategy, in other words, in order to choose to show up for our own formation, to participate in becoming who it is we are becoming, there are essentially five factors that we need to participate in. And each of these factors that comes from the life of Jesus, the way of Jesus, runs counter to the way of the world. Or as I've said to you for a couple of weeks, in my life, what I'm always doing is taking the way of Jesus and plugging it in and trying to replace the way of Philip, my way, the way that I would live, the way that I would like to do life on my own. Here's those five factors quickly. The first is teaching. The teaching of the Bible, the teaching of Jesus runs counter and is opposed to the stories, the narratives that our culture tells us and the things that we grow up believing to be true for all people everywhere. 
The second is practice. Practice runs opposed to routines, to habits, the sort of mindless, numb things that we just go through every day that actually play a significant role in shaping what we love and who we're becoming. We can choose to participate and push back on those things by adopting some of the practices, what we've called the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. The third, where we were last week, is community. We spent some time diving into how community is different from just the relationships that we choose for ourselves. That our community in the church is the people whom we inherit from Jesus. They're not necessarily the people we would have chosen for ourselves. But we believe by participating in that community that we are doing what any of those 12 first disciples of Jesus would have done every day that they spent with him on earth. That we are following him first, but by way of following him, we find ourselves in step with other Christians and that outside of that reality, there's probably not a lot of discipleship happening in our lives if we're choosing to be separate from community. Today, what we'll deal with is the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus as a new environment in which we live, that we can, to quote Brother Lawrence of the resurrection, we can be with God and in the life that we live. We can practice his presence. We don't have to go away to a monastery, a mountaintop, a dungeon, lock ourselves in the bathroom, whatever it is we're tempted to do to isolate. That may be a helpful thing in certain moments, an emergency break to pull in your life, certainly, but the daily, moment-to-moment, minute-by-minute life of a Christian can be actually full to the brim with the presence of God. The Bible would argue that it already is. If Christ is ours, then the Spirit does fill our lives. But oftentimes we are so numb to that, we're so blind to it, we're so distracted, we're in such a big hurry, we don't see or sense any of it. And so that's where the practice of the presence of God comes in for us. And then finally, where we'll go next week is we'll deal with spiritual realities, what uh, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, calls the concrete reality of the present kingdom of God. That when Jesus comes in Mark 1 and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's close by, that that's him communicating the rules have changed a little bit here for you and I. The way we view the world, the expectations that we have for our lives, even the way we read the Bible itself is different from the Old Testament world and especially the world that exists without Christ. So we'll dial in today on the Holy Spirit. And if you have a Bible, I would ask that you head to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to make our way there in a minute. That'll be our primary text. I think, if I remember right, that is our only text this morning. I think you're going to find it to be very helpful as we navigate who the Spirit is, what he does, and then try to talk a little bit about what he's not. We're going to try to identify and eliminate four false flags of the Spirit of God. So as you're making your way there, uh, 2 Corinthians is after 1 Corinthians, so maybe that's obvious to you, but it's in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one today. We have some back at our Connect table that are free. We'd love to just send you home with one that you can read and start to get to know. But as you head that way, I want to talk to you and just give you some insight into what this process has been like for me. So we're about eight weeks in. It was the middle of March when I first sort of pitched this big idea, when I asked the question, why do we have so many Christians who know what not to do, but who don't really have any idea how to backfill all the space that eliminating the sin in their life has created for them? They don't know how to spend their minutes, their weeks, their hours, their years with Jesus. They know how to pray, and they feel guilty that they don't do it enough or more. Uh, They understand they ought to come to church, but they really don't have any idea what role they play, and they don't really get, are they supposed to just come and watch? Is it like a show? Are they supposed to participate? Should they always be serving in some capacity? And so we tried to dial in on what Jesus says. What is the most basic form of the relationship between Jesus as a rabbi in the ancient Near Eastern world and his disciples? His Talmudim, if you want to use the more Hebrew word, the word that would kind of be couched in that relationship. And so eight weeks since then, we've just tried to push on different ideas. I've tried to introduce a lot of theory to you. 
Uh, many of you are reading books that you would have never read because I have recommended or introduced different people you've never heard of who are great thinkers, great writers, great faithful Christians, interacting in these different arenas of spirituality and the way the mind works and how, who the church is and who it's not. But for me personally, I'll just tell you, my life has basically gone the way that it tends to go when I try to add something new. Um, I am comfortable telling you that I am a high-functioning workaholic. Uh, and I don't mean workaholic like, oh, I stay at the office a few nights too late during the week. I mean I have an actual addictive tendency in me toward tasks. I don't even have the fun kind of workaholism where you get a high after you finish a task. Like, I come down when the work is done. I just want to do more work. I'm only really happy when I'm grinding away and I'm getting in a hurry and I'm being efficient and I'm getting stuff done and I'm over-communicating and I'm getting my hands dirty and, I'm just, and I just kind of accelerate that way until I reach the point where I just kind of either crash or explode or implode. It's not good. It's not healthy. And my wife knows and I know and our elders know and we're all working together to help me be a different person than I am. But even as a recovering workaholic, as a person who's actually left jobs in the past to get away from that tendency, I have to tell you that merging two churches, renovating a church building, training new elders, shepherding a church, and preaching to the best of my ability every week is a pretty aggressive environment for somebody who's trying not to do too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uniquely, and this is not your fault, you guys are encouraging to me, but uniquely in this environment, when my workaholism shows up, it oftentimes, you guys are encouraging about it. Like a lot of people will say, man, I don't know how we're getting so much done so fast, and I know August 7th is coming, and we're going to get the building ready, and there's all these different projects working together, and certainly I am one small cog in the machine of everything that's working, but I happen to be the one that kind of sticks out the farthest, and people tend to see the most. And there's something just really sick about the way that this addiction to work can actually warp and manipulate encouragement that generous, kind-hearted believers try to give to me, such that I have to be wary of it. I have to be careful that it doesn't just inflate my ego up, but actually uplifts my spirit in the way that it's intended. So in my life, I've known this about myself for many years, long before my wife and I ever moved to Alaska. This first showed up in my first full-time job out of college, uh, and even earlier than that. I have benefited from something you've probably heard of but may have never looked at, the 12 steps as made famous by Alcoholics Anonymous. If you've never read the steps before, if you've never looked at them, we're going to talk about just a couple here for a minute, just kind of as a way for you to kind of understand the journey that I've been on personally. But I would encourage you, if, if you've not looked at those and you're a person who struggles to apologize and take responsibility, they would be a help to you. Especially if you're a man who works in an environment where there's very few people above you and a lot of people below you and you tend to come home and boss and push and direct your family like they are employees, the steps might give you some perspective on who you really are and how to play that role at home a little bit differently. So step one of those 12 steps is to admit that you are powerless over what you are addicted to. Now, in Alcoholics Anonymous, obviously, this is alcohol. You say, I have no power over alcohol. I'm addicted to it. It's ruining my life. Um, and the second part of step one is to admit that your life has become unmanageable because of your addiction. And this is a hard thing to admit for many people. They want their addiction to be something that kind of lives in the sidecar of the motorcycle of their life, where they act like they could just detach it at any time and it would go away, but they never actually do that detaching. That's how you know that it's an addiction. It always stays a theoretical move away, when in practice you're always moving closer and further into it and adopting it more and protecting it more and defending it more. And so for me, that's work. I've been there with work before. I've been there where my tasks, and I'm not just saying this job at this church, I'm saying the way that I interact with the world is that I want to fix and do and go and change and challenge. It's an attitude thing. It's not just the job that I have. But the way that I approach the world with a work mentality often puts me in a place where my life becomes unmanageable, ironically. 
trying to overmanage by being an overworking person puts me in a position where I actually lose the control I am so desperate to hang on to. So then from step two, you have to find a little bit of hope. Step two of the 12 steps is that you believe and you admit out loud that God can restore you, that you are not too far gone. Though you've not yet taken one step on that restoration journey, you acknowledge that there is a journey to be taken and that God will go with you and he is the one who will do what you've been unable to do. He will break the chains of your addiction. He will make your life manageable again by giving you back your self-control. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that there is no work on earth important enough for me to justify 80 hours at the office a week for the rest of my life. And I also know that no number of 80-hour weeks in my past has warped me so badly that I'm outside of God's ability to heal me. I'm not irredeemable. So then you get to step three. Step three is that you surrender your will. You say, I will no longer try to get by on my own ability, my willpower. It's insufficient for me. This is often the part that takes me the longest because the first two steps are sort of just mind game steps. They're, they're mental assent. They're things I just have to admit are true and, and kind of admit that they're true for me. But part three is where I have to willingly take my hands off the steering wheel. And off all of the steering wheels, in my case, there's usually 10. I'm trying to drive 10 cars at one time when I'm, my workaholism is in full swing. I'm trying to do everything for everybody, and I'm high as a kite because of all of it. Like, truly, there's an endorphin like loop in my brain of feeling awesome about everything that I'm getting done, and I'm not taking care of anybody that I'm supposed to take care of. I'm just doing, 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 doing. So then you get to step four, and this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is the challenge to me. And I think you'll begin to see the parallel of where we've been the last eight weeks and how it's reminded me of these steps I've had to take in my life over and over again. Step four is to, quote, take a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. A searching, so it looks under every rock, it opens every closet door in the hallways of your heart, but also fearless, that you stand and face who you really are. You look in the mirror over and over again and you let other people, your children, your spouse, your coworkers, your parents, begin to tell you what they have known for a long time that you are just now beginning to see in yourself as true. That you are an addict, that you can't break these chains, that your willpower is insufficient. You take a hard look at yourself, not who you would like to be, but who you have actually become as a result of your addiction and then you name what you find. That's the hardest part of step four. If you've ever been a part of an accountability group in the church, sometimes those can be helpful. I would argue probably 80% of the time they do very little in our lives at all because we're not really there to be accountable. Oftentimes what people will do, you'll hear them do this. If you ever do any counseling, they'll downplay what they've been participating in by saying things like, well, I messed up, or I made a mistake, or I did that thing again. There's a real psychological power in play when we refuse to name exactly what happened to us. And when we say it, it hurts, but then all of a sudden we find that we can separate ourselves from it. And when it gets outside of me, I realize I'm still here. That thing that I was addicted to isn't all of who I am. It's not my being. It's just a thing that I've been engaged in in an unhealthy way. And now I can see it. I can see the hideous, ugly, sharp thorns that stick out all over it that have dug themselves into every arena of my life. And so you name it at the end of part four. Instead of saying, for instance, I have a drinking problem, you say, I am an alcoholic whether you want to say that or not. That's how you get to the end of step four. Or instead of saying, I have marriage issues, you would say, I am a serial adulterer. Or in my case, instead of saying, work has been crazy lately, and I really wish I could be home more in the evenings, charming, happy, finger guns, right? No big deal. Instead, I say, I am a workaholic. And I always will be. 
And instead of avoiding that, I have to look it in the eye and I have to understand, and here's the principle for you and why I'm even sharing this with you this morning, that when we look at the first three factors of formation, the things that we are addicted to can usually come along for the ride that far. They don't have to get off the bus for us to make progress. My workaholism is the lens through which I try to approach teaching and practice and community. I throw myself at these things. I overconsume. I'm unbalanced in the same way that I'm unbalanced in every other arena of my life when my addiction is in full swing, yet I tell myself that because my addiction is somehow serving God, maybe it's okay this time. That's not God's plan for me. Warping and twisting some version of a religious system is very different from being with Jesus and following Jesus. And in my Bible, when people find the Christ, that addiction is what's broken. They don't just bring all those problems along and find a way to force them into this Jesus-shaped box so that they look better to everybody else. They're changed. So here's what that means for me. My will in my life, that thing that keeps me addicted to work, it oftentimes feels like the strongest and most important of all my personal tools. Not my mind, not my spirit, not even my body. I often neglect those three things in the interest of just exerting that pure, white, hot instinct that I live with. You can ask anybody on our staff. I have an unlimited supply of opinions. I know what I think about everything instantly, and that is a product of me being ready to move at all times. And that's not healthy. I have to wait. I have to stay. This is why elders are such a fabulous way that God designed for the church to be led. It keeps people like me, idiots like me, from just running after every little thing that pops up and deciding this sort of spiritual whack-a-mole is the way the church is supposed to work. It's not. I'm not saying I don't have any strengths to bring to the table, but when I think of my will, it's the part of me that I have the most anxiety about giving an explanation for when I face God, to be honest with you. I'm nervous that he'll say you didn't do enough because I think I'm not doing enough. I'm not really even asking him what he thinks. I just feel like surely if he gave me all this ability and talent and I don't need that much sleep at night and I can get by on caffeine and salting crackers and whatever else I do to just sort of like squeeze another 15 minutes out of my day in a million different areas, surely that's his will, right? As long as it's being done to serve him, but it can't be done to serve him. That's the issue. I'm the one deciding that that's the way that it could work when in the scriptures there's no version of that spiritual state that has anything to do with Jesus. I can feel often in my life how powerful my sheer force of will is inside of me, and I live with this fear. What would it be like to try to be me without that? What if I really gave that to God? What if he took that away from me? What if that was a BC, if you will, a before Christ factor in my life? I'm scared to find out. I'm scared of who I would be. I'm scared of how I would live without this sort of blind instinct that's ready to run down any wall that it finds that I carry around with me. Here's the problem. Here's why I've needed the steps. Here's why I'm sharing this with you. For eight weeks, my internal battle, for eight weeks, the war that I've been at with myself, the thing that I continue to bring back to God, is that I would actually accept something from him. That I would let him do all the work, and that I would actually expect him to do even a little bit of the work. Because oftentimes I wake up in the morning, and my spiritual to-do list is longer than my other to-do lists, and I just try to punch those things out all day. And by 11 o'clock at night, I'm on this sort of high and mighty throne that I've built for myself out of my own spiritual achievements. It doesn't produce humility in me. It doesn't make me Christ-like. I don't end up serving the people that I love. It's just another version of being a CEO in my own little corporate heart that I live in. So the issue is this. The issue is that my willpower, even my type A, Enneagram A, doer, fixer, creative, aggressive, challenger willpower will eventually run out. And that's what happened about two weeks ago. 
six weeks into the eight weeks that we've been working on this together. We're coming off of Easter, we're coming off of Palm Sunday, and I ran out of gas again. Big surprise, right? You knew that I would. If I would have called any of you and asked you, am I going to be able to sustain the rate at which I'm moving, you would have said, no, no, and nobody even asked you to do that. That's what's crazy. It's not that there's all these people looming over you who need you to overwork. You're just doing this to yourself. But yet, again, I took a new idea, a new set of practices, a new principle, a new teaching series, and I thought, I'll just make that the thing that I'm going to shove down my own throat and make myself different. And it didn't work. A summary of how the past eight weeks have gone for me is this, and I, I, I'm quoting this from some time I spent writing yesterday. In spite of throwing every ounce of my workaholism at building and at executing a plan for Christ-likeness, my will has totally and completely failed to shape me into the image of Jesus. I can't do it. I can't force my heart through the Play-Doh machine and have a Jesus-shaped guy come out the other side. I don't have the ability to do that. I've not been able to brute force myself to Jesus. And this is just my particular vice. In the same way that I'm going through what I'm going through, if I was to poll all of you, which I won't do, don't worry, uh, I bet some of you would say that you have been unable to plan your way to Jesus in the last eight weeks. And I bet it's been frustrating for you. You've taken that same lens, that same worldview, that same total dependence on self, and just like me, you've tried to duct tape teaching and duct tape practice and duct tape community onto the side of the thing you're already doing, hoping that maybe this time it'll work, even though it never has before. Others would say they've been unable to think their way to Jesus, and they're frustrated about that. Others have been unable to worry their way to Jesus. Some of you have been unable to charm your way to Jesus, even though that's the way that you navigate every other relationship in your life. Some of us have been unable to joke our way there, manipulate our way there, lie, whine, complain, stress, whatever else it is that makes you feel like your spiritual life is stuck on repeat. And that's good. I would bet that the majority of us stand now together at step four. Maybe you're not an alcoholic, but you're some kind of holic because you're a human being and you live in 2022. Today is a day where we get to take a fearless and honest spiritual inventory of ourselves. And I think what you'll find is the process is designed to work this way. Maybe not before the fall, maybe not before sin entered the world, but since you and I have been broken by the darkness that exists inside of every human being, now we have to reach the end of ourselves before the beginning of what God will do actually starts. We need more than we can muster. This is what the 12 steps teach addicts like me, and it's one of the central messages of the New Testament. Because in reality, whether you know it or not, whether you've ever even experienced anything more than these three factors that we've discussed that most churches at least agree with in concept, whether they execute them or not, those three things, teaching, practice, community, make up on their own about 10% of what it means to follow Jesus. And the other 90, the transformation, the inspiration, the filling, the power, the gifts, the ability to actually walk and live the life that Jesus lived, this is why we're not just people who study Jesus' ways at some secular university and learn enough about him that we learn how to emulate him. It's why we are people who talk about being born again, people who practice baptism, people who eat a meal together once a month where we say that the bread is Jesus' body and the blood is his, or the cup is his blood. We say all these kinds of things because the Spirit of God makes us different, changes and transforms us, and that's where the other 90% happens. Now, I want to be clear, and I'm taking my time to get to the scriptures today because I really want you to understand what we're trying to get at, okay? You have some responsibility. That 10% matters. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say, 
My mother and my brothers are those who hear my teaching and put it into practice. It's why or he wouldn't say in Matthew 7, right? Build your house on my teaching. Do what I actually tell you to do. And it's like building your house on the rock. You get to choose where you lay the foundation of your life, whether it's the sand of the world or the rock of the way of Jesus. That's up to you. But that's it. The storm will come. How you weather that storm, how many storms come, how often you move from house to house, whether or not you need to relay that foundation, all the cracks that will exist in that foundation because of your family of origin, your past abuse that you've endured, bad churches that you've been around, these are all things that will have to be addressed by the Spirit. The power that you have and the place that your willpower ought to be engaged is whether or not you will participate, you will actually try to do the things that Jesus said to do, but eventually you'll reach the end of yourself. As a person who has immense willpower to the point that it dominates his life and often tries to ruin his relationships, let me tell you, it does not matter how big the muscles of your interior life become, they will fail eventually. You need something else. Now, I think I have good news for you. But as we navigate this together, I'm just going to ask that you stay with me and that you trust that we're not teaching any new doctrine, but what we're discussing today is the true, foundational, most basic level of understanding of what it means to participate in the life of Jesus by way of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, we come right in, two chapters into one of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. There's a lot of context that we don't have time to totally tap into here, but I'll just tell you, the Apostle Paul is going to use a word picture in these first six verses right out of the gate to try to help the Corinthian church understand why Paul is so confident in them. Because they have a ton of issues. They have every sin that you can think of in 2022 is popping up in this Corinthian church. These are not Jewish people. They don't know the Old Testament, Tanakh, the Jewish Bible at all. They don't even really relate to Paul all that well because he seems a little bit uptight, stuck up. But Paul's communicating to them there's a hope that they have despite their behavior that anchors them in what God is doing in the church on the planet Earth. Here he says in verse 1, he asks a question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Talking about himself and a couple of the other of his disciples that travel with him and help him write these letters. He says, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or letters of recommendation from you? Paul's saying, Where do we, how do we take credit for what's happened in your lives? How do we remember and prove and remind ourselves that God has worked in your midst and that he is good? You yourselves, verse 2, are our letter of recommendation. It's written on our hearts to be known and to be read by all. And you show, you prove, is what he's saying, that you are a letter from Christ that's been delivered by us, but not a letter written with ink, a letter written with the spirit of the living God. And not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, the same new covenant that Jesus rolls out in John chapter 15. Not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit of the law. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Look back at verse 4. Here's what Paul's trying to say. I know it's a little convoluted, translated from Greek into English for you. It may be hard to wrap your mind around. Paul is essentially saying, we are so confident in who we are in Jesus, that we can send you Corinthian believers out into the world with the presence of the Spirit of God etched into your inner being. We, we feel good about doing that. Like, that's how you ought to live. You, sh you will navigate the trials of life with just the Spirit of God written on your heart. Why? He says their transformed lives, the lives of these Corinthians, are a letter of recommendation 
both to the apostles who helped plant the church. They confirm that God is at work in these believers. They're also a letter of recommendation to the believers themselves, proof positive that they are actually sought out by God and now belong to Christ. But even further than that, they're a letter of recommendation to the world. This is the way that God will communicate what he's capable of, is people will see changed lives, the presence of the Spirit etched into the hearts of people. Now, why say all of that? This is what Paul's getting at in verse 5. Because, to quote Paul, we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. In other words, the work that has to be done to turn a wicked Corinthian sinner, a person just like you and me, into someone who is a walking, talking letter of recommendation for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work that has to be done to turn trash into something that you frame on the wall, is done only by the Spirit. The gateway that a person has to pass through to go from being that wadded up piece of garbage to being something worth putting on a shelf and looking to and learning about and understanding who Jesus is and what he's done from is the new covenant. It's the work of the Spirit. And because Jesus has ascended now to the right hand of God the Father after his resurrection, the new covenant comes to us by the power of the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying at the close of verse 6. The letter of the law kills. If all you were, you Christians, was a representation of how hard a person can work, willpower, if that's all you are is an example to the world of how Jesus can use people who are addicted to task completion, there's nothing good in this for any of us. If you're just a disciple of me, Paul says, there's nothing good in any of this for any of us. The thing that brings life everywhere that you go is that spirit who is written onto your heart. In other words, without the spirit of God, none of this matters. It doesn't make a difference in the world to the Apostle Paul if the spirit is not in these believers inhabiting their lives. So who is that spirit? Well, the spirit is God himself. The Spirit is the one who distributes the new covenant between God and man, the covenant that was administered and consummated by Jesus himself. More importantly, the Spirit is the agent of God's will in the life of the Apostle Paul, to the point that Paul admits freely, whatever commendable work that the church or the world or even God himself sees in Paul is the work of the Spirit. Paul's not doing any of this on his own power. So we haven't even gotten to the good part of this passage yet, but I want to share a principle with you. If you're taking notes, I would write this down. The work of the Holy Spirit is indispensable for apprentices of Jesus. Indispensable. However far you may go, whatever it is that you plan to do or have already tried to do the last eight weeks or you're looking ahead into the summer, you're doing sort of that formation audit that I talked about a couple weeks ago and you're really getting hyped up about pulling out habits and plugging in disciplines, all of that's good. But don't forget the word that always comes before the word discipline, spiritual. If the Spirit of God is not what makes those disciplines spiritual, then your personal formation is really just spiritual hospice care. The Spirit is what will turn hospice care into life-giving corrective action in your life. If you're not familiar with hospice, it's, it's the way that a person is cared for in their dying days. You qualify for hospice when you have six months to live or less. So if the Spirit of God is not all in whatever formation paradigm you choose to adopt, even if it's not the one we've been talking about as a church for however many weeks, just know that at best all you're doing is helping yourself comfortably die. The Spirit of God is what turns those disciplines, those little bits of training, into something that can ever bear any kind of fruit for anybody. Take it from Paul. 
Paul is the man who found a way to be both the purest and most honorable man in the culture of the Christians, and yet at the same time, the most detestable and feared tyrant in his culture before he was saved. He had seen both ends of the spectrum. He had done everything trying to pursue God and screwed it all up, and he had become a person whose life was built so totally on grace that human effort was outside of his realm of possibility as a source for what was going right in his life. He didn't think anything of it had to do anything with him. Now, I want to ask you a real practical question. When you think of the Apostle Paul, do you think the Apostle Paul practiced any of the spiritual disciplines? You can actually answer me. I know it's been like 25 minutes and you haven't said a word, but do you think the Apostle Paul practiced any spiritual disciplines? Yes, we know that he did. We know he at least attended the synagogue on the Sabbath. We know that he practiced memorization of Scripture at the bare minimum, memorization of the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, before he was saved and his name was changed. But we also know that he was always praying for his disciples. He was always praying for their churches as a practice. Every letter that he wrote that's in the New Testament of your Bible includes mention of him praying for different specific people and loving and being in community with certain people and eating with certain people and giving sacrificially of his own money and the monies of the churches that he's overseeing. So do you think, another question I want you to actually answer, do you think that those spiritual practices mattered in Paul's life? Yes, you think they made a difference at all? Yes, okay, absolutely. Do you think Paul's memorization of the Jewish Bible served him as a church planter and missionary? Yes, it was very helpful. Was there absolutely room to bring all of that up in the verses that we just read? Yes, sure, of course. If he's giving evidence and he's explaining to people in a church that's far from him how they ought to go with Christ, wouldn't you think it would be totally understandable for him to say, if you guys would be memorizing the Bible, and I sent a couple of copies along with you in a box, they're coming, Amazon's going to drop them off in a couple weeks, and also you guys need to be in prayer this many times a day, you need to lock it in, make sure you're praying for the right things all together. Like th this would be the time when Paul is talking about the work of the gospel on the face of the planet that he would bring those things up. And yet, Paul said to us, we are not able to claim anything as coming from us. It all came from the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is indispensable, even for those of us who have carefully curated the best Christian teachings into a perfect podcast feed. We still need the Spirit. Those of us who have been journaling and fasting and interceding on behalf of those we love for decades, the Spirit is indispensable. Even those of us who are so into community that we may be Moved, maybe you bought a house on the same street as your life group leader, just to be close, just to be in their backyard more than once, one night a week, right? Even in that extreme scenario, it's not that valuable to you if you don't have the Spirit of God. That's what Paul is driving at. But what if you don't like the Holy Spirit? What if it's scary, spooky? Every time I say it to you, you kind of go, uh, 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 I'm not really into it. Maybe you're more of an Old Testament kind of Christian who gets really pumped up by highlighting God's anger and wrath and all the Holy Spirit's ever been to you is this sort of impersonal force who hovers over the waters in Genesis 1. Or maybe it's not the Spirit himself, it's the way that people interact with the Spirit or use the Spirit or make claims on the Spirit's behalf. Some kind of previous experience in a church that emphasized gifts or, or made you just want to stay away from anything like that in the future in a way that felt gross to you. In my experience, there are many attitudes that would tempt us, that would lead us to what I would call a reductionist view of the Holy Spirit. The reasons that people want to reduce or minimize the Spirit are varied, and this is not a sermon really about all of that, about spiritual abuse or about cessationism versus continuationism. What matters for the sake of our spiritual formation is whether or not we are willing to partner with the Spirit of God, or if instead of that, we have accepted some kind of false finish line. 
Or maybe you're a hiker like I am. You can think of a false peak where you see something and you go, surely if I can get up there, that's the objective. And then you get up there and you realize there's like six more of these things to climb before I actually get to the highest one. Regardless of what may make a person into a Holy Spirit reductionist, I think there are four primary ways that people misattribute the presence of the Spirit in each other's lives. So I just want to quickly hit these, and then we'll finish our reading in 2 Corinthians and we'll be done for the day. Here they are rapidly, okay? And as a caveat, I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't do any of these four things. I am saying that they are not. None of these four is the primary work of the Spirit in you. So the first is this, external conformity to Jesus' teaching in specific contexts in the Bible. So what I mean here is what modern theologians have called behavior modification. The primary objective of the Holy Spirit is not just to get you to do a few things differently or more Christian-y. One does not need the Spirit of God to imitate Christians for a little while. The Spirit is indispensable for a lifetime of imitating Jesus himself. There's a big difference between the two of those things. So be wary of those who you meet who are full to the brim with quotes and concepts and strategies and cliches from thinkers and authors and speakers and teachers and yet never have anything to say about their own encounter with the Spirit of God in prayer that never have any insight to offer from the time they've actually spent with God in the scriptures or in meditation or in memorization themselves. Be careful that you don't assume that a person who has all the Bible answers and sounds just like all the hottest, trendiest authors and conference speakers on the evangelical conference circuit, don't lie to yourself that that's necessarily evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God. A few weeks ago, I identified for you what I call the church industrial complex. You can learn to play this game. You can go to the right schools, you can get the right internships, and you can become the man or woman in a way that fools a lot of other people. Not the same thing. Number two, second false flag is profession of perfectly correct doctrine. This is the kind of religious performance featured in the Gospels by the leaders of the Jewish religious system, who we call the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not to overquote the Apostle Paul today, but his words about acting perfectly without love, that that's being worth no more than the awful clanging of like an out-of-tune drum kit in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one book before, you've heard that before. If I, if I give up my own body, if I'm burned at the stake, if I give away everything in my life, if all I do is try and try and try, and yet I have no love, I have nothing. That's what Paul's driving at. I'll say that to you this way, maybe this will be helpful. Loud and clear is not the same thing as right and loving. Loud and clear is not the same thing as right and loving. Doctrinal shouting fests look very little like anything of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay, do not assume the Spirit is present where many spiritual facts have been memorized, especially if Jesus or his teaching have been weaponized by the wielder. The Spirit is not in that. The Spirit is not handing you something to attack and tear down other people with. He's handing you something with which to confront sin to call out what is objectively wrong from the scripture's perspective, but the goal is always to get a person to life, not to just confirm their own death to them. Third, faithfulness to the activities of a church or some other outwardly religious routines. And this is a hard one for people like me who grew up in a local church. We feel a natural magnetism toward things like stacking chairs when church is over or vacuuming the floor after meals, or making sure we show up early and stay late for every fellowship meal and every Easter egg hunt and every canned food drive and handbell rehearsal and VBS training and on and on and on some of us go. We must be wary of assuming the presence and work of the Spirit among those who show up every time the church doors are open. Because faith and religion are close neighbors, but they are not the same. 
And although faith can be born in the heart of a religious person in a way that redeems all of the ritual and all of the sacrifice of religious life, that's totally possible, religion can also taint and infect faith to the point that the fire of faith is quenched and what was once done out of faith is reduced to empty religious habit. So again, don't try to evaluate your own or in the lives of other people external spiritual habits as some metric for whether or not the presence of God is actually in your life. Certainly, as you follow Jesus, you will come around buildings like this one more often, and you'll get plugged in, and you'll help, and you'll serve, and you should. Those are good things. But we ought not assume, based on someone's performance, that they are actually living in the presence of the Spirit daily. Fourth and last, the fourth false flag is a higher state of mind or some kind of ecstatic experience. This is the easiest one to pick on, so I'm not going to do that today. I don't want to pick on or attack wherever some of you may come from or what you may have heard about or seen picked on in the broader evangelical sphere. What I'll just say to you is, just like the first three false flags that we've mentioned, mental or spiritual ascension to some higher plane of thought, if it happens regularly in worship, if it becomes sort of a public display in a worship gathering, it can be very easily misunderstood as a false flag for the presence of the Spirit. Here's why it's dangerous. Once that's achieved, once you figure out a way to either force your body to react as if you're having an emotional experience that you're not, or you find yourself sucked into something that's so dynamic and so loud and so engaging that you have an emotional experience, even though you don't really know why you did, once that happens, that emotional state becomes the only objective for you. This is how you know that you've been misled. You're not really trying to get to Jesus. You're trying to get that high. It's a whole new holism, if you will. Workaholism, you, probably you can have sort of an ecstatic emotional worship experience addiction in your life. And it's easy to tell yourself, because that happened once, it has to happen every time, and if it doesn't, you've failed, or the church has failed, or the band wasn't that good, or you must have sinned against God, so there must be this new horrible thing. It becomes totally emotional, and I think emotional should, should and do play a role in how we connect with the Lord, but it becomes totally emotional to the point that it overpowers and unbalances everything the scriptures have to say about the presence of the Spirit, when and where he shows up, what he does and doesn't do. What's especially unfortunate about this is if other people witness you go through this, they can be tempted to make that their objective as well. And they haven't even had the, the experience. They haven't even tasted it. They've just heard you talk about it in Bible study or share it in a prayer request, and now they're chasing after this white rabbit they can never find in their own spiritual journey. There is no secret knowledge that the Spirit of God will only give to those who achieve some kind of Christian enlightenment. This is not the way that Jesus leads. Jesus goes to the masses and says, here I am, I'm laying it all out for you, take it or leave it. It's wide open. There's no secret knowledge. It's just, it's just, are you in or are you out? The truths of the gospel are made clear in the Bible, and they're available for everybody. The Spirit's objective for you is not spiritual ascension. It's actually that you would lower yourself, that you would become a servant in the image of Christ to the point that you serve everybody and you never lord any spiritual experience over anyone. So the Spirit does all four of these works, but he does them in us so that we are humbled, and yet none of them is themselves the primary objective. So what is? Well, Paul finishes chapter 3. Look at verse 15. He says, to this day, whenever Moses, you can read that as the Old Testament, whenever the Old Testament is read, a veil lies over the hearts of those who hear it. But when a person turns to the Lord, which is Paul's favorite way to talk about Jesus, the veil is removed. Now, Jesus is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of Jesus is, there is freedom. And we all, now with unveiled faces, behold the glory of Jesus and are being 
transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes to us from Jesus, who is the Spirit. Verse 15, Paul's talking about uh, an old story from the Old Testament. You may remember Exodus 34, when uh, Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting. He would leave, and his face would glow so bright people couldn't look at it. So Moses would wear a veil over his face for the next few hours so he could begin to interact with people. The Apostle Paul is saying, in a way, the people of the Old Testament, the people who never had Jesus, were physically incapable of encountering the glory of God, even reflected off of the face of a human being. Like the veil wasn't just so Moses could hide and blend in with everybody else. It wasn't that good of a veil. It was there so that people could look in his general direction and not be blinded by the brightness, the physical light emitting from his skin as a result of being in God's presence. And yet Paul says, he uses metaphor to move the ball and say, anybody who tries to encounter God in the scriptures still has a veil. We still can't see God directly. It's not just about Moses coming out of the tent of meeting. It's anybody, anywhere trying to engage with who God really is and what he wants. The way that that veil is removed from all of us is the presence of the Spirit of God. This is why the Spirit is indispensable, and this is the objective. This is the thing that we cannot allow to become relegated to second or third or fourth on the Holy Spirit's to-do list in our minds and hearts. This is the thing that he exists to do, to do the transformative work. This is why teaching and practice and community can only ever be one-tenth of what our whole process with Jesus is. We come as far as we can, and then the Spirit says, great, you've been working with a veil, It's not wrong to get up early and read your Bible. It's not a bad idea to get plugged into a life group. You ought to find a church that teaches the Bible well and rightly, but that's as far as you can get yourself. Everything past that point is me. And because Jesus lived and died and lived again, the veil is gone. And you don't have to live in the Old Testament world where you now need an intercessor to come and go between you and God to ask questions and give you answers and give you insight. An intercessor that you can't even look at because his face is so bright. Now the veil is removed by the Spirit of God for what purpose? Look back at verse 18. Now we see the glory of Jesus. We see him. We don't just hear about him. We're not trying to kind of work our way into who he might be or what he's doing. It is made plain to us by the work of the Spirit of God. This is the supernatural element of life with Jesus on the earth. And as a result, we are being transformed. So if every week you've seen me put on that slide, belong to Jesus and behold Jesus and become like him, and you've gone, I'm trying, I'm trying, I've been trying for years. Every church I've ever been to has had a different repackaged way of saying the same ideas, and it never sticks for me. It's possible that the veil is still there. And it may be that because of those four false flags that we tend to associate with the Spirit of God, you may have settled for something that is less than the veil being removed. You may have settled for knowledge or performance or behavior modification or emotional ecstasy, and all of those things can happen. They are in the orbit of the Spirit of God, but we must push on. We must pray and know God's word and keep our eyes on who the Spirit is and what he wants to do. And if it's anything less than transforming you, what a great place to start in your prayer life. A simple prayer. Jesus, I trust that you're near. I trust that you care. I believe that this is real. I'm trying. I've tried hard. I've only gotten so far. I surrender to you my idea of what it would mean for me to become a mature believer. And instead, I'm going to wait 
until you pull the veil back. Just right here with you, in the kitchen, over the dishes, in the pickup line, at work, in a meeting that I've already mentally checked out of. I'm not telling you not to do your job, okay? But if you're in a spot where you're just sort of biding time, go to God in prayer. He's with you. He's already around. Just acknowledge him. And slowly and over time, you'll find that though that veil has been pulled back, your experience may have reveiled it, and the Spirit will roll that back for you. And what seems ethereal and over-spiritualized and hard to connect with and maybe too good to be true will all of a sudden, slowly over time, but you'll realize it all at once, it'll become your reality. You won't just be in Anchorage anymore. You won't just be on base anymore. You won't just be at the grocery store. You'll be all of those places with the Spirit of God present in you. And he will, as your face is unveiled, transform you over time, degree by degree, into Jesus. You will get back to the original purpose of humanity. You'll bear the image. That's all you were made to do. And the Spirit of God can imprint upon you in a way that corrects and heals and undoes all the damage of every sin that you've ever done and that's ever been done to you in your life. And that is the work of the Christian life with him. Now, I had a plan today to share with you a story, and I'm out of time, so I apologize for that. Um, I want to just ask you and encourage you, if you're able, I know we're reaching the summertime, and lots of people have lots of plans, and things are kind of pulling them different directions. If you're not able to follow along with us through the end of this sermon series, please make it a point to try to catch up online if you can. The foundational truth that I'm trying to lay out for you, the thing we're building, we're going to need it for the next three years. This is not just a one-off sermon series. This is the 101. This is the intro to where we're headed for the next long time. So I just want to, again, remind you and encourage you, if you're able to, take the time, go back, listen through the things that you've missed, discuss with your life group, send a text to somebody if you can't be there on Wednesday or Thursday or whenever your group meets, and try to stay engaged. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off today. I'm going to go ahead and share with you the sort of last set of principles that I have about the Spirit of God, and then we'll move from that into the concrete reality of the present kingdom of God. I'm excited to do that with you. So I want to pray with you. I appreciate you guys being here this morning, going with me on this journey. Let's pray together, talk to the Lord, and then we'll wrap up and head on our separate ways this morning. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the presence of your Spirit, especially God, because the presence of your Spirit assures us that there is actually a reason to have hope. Especially me, God, that something can change me other than me is really good news. It's painful. It's hard to acknowledge often, and it's a thing that I slip back into again and again and again in my life. But it's ultimately good news for me. So I pray, God, that you'd give us the faith today to confess and believe that regardless of how strong or weak we think of ourselves, that all of us are going to run out of willpower eventually. And that whatever thing it is that we continually come back to, the cycle of vice and wickedness in our life, that your plan is not for us to just strap Christianity onto that thing, but that there would be a willing act of surrender in us, in our inner being, we would let go, God. We'd come to that point where we have a fearless and searching self-evaluation and come to realize that we need more than ourselves. So I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to the presence and the work of your spirit. I pray, God, that we would become people who settle for nothing less than transformation in your presence as we look at your glory this morning. God, give us that experience as we finish in song. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.